You are Locked On Women's Basketball, part of the Locked On Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to Locked On Women's Basketball. I'm your host, Howard Meddahl, reminding you you can follow us on Twitter at LockedOnWBB, like us on Facebook, or go ahead and rate and review us. Subscribe on iTunes or your podcast listen of choice. Uh, more people who subscribe, the more people who are aware of women's basketball and following it closely. It's something that's important to me. I know it's important to you as well. And somebody else it's important to, somebody who does more than anyone else on earth <laughs> to be able to make that happen, uh, is with me today. Uh, previous guest on the show, one of my favorite people, Debbie Antonelli, Antonelli. Thank you so much for taking the time. Howard, I'm always honored when you call me. Thank you so much. I'm glad to be able to spend some time with you today. I, I'm disappointed. I didn't get to hear your call last night because we were at the same site at Bridgeport. <laughs> uh, the call the day before of what I think might have been the best basketball game of the season in Stanford-Notre Dame was, was just fantastic. Take me through, if you would, your thoughts and your experience of calling that game, where it rates for you. Well, anytime someone gets a chance to cut down the nets, that rate's very high for me, Howard. So um, I've been fortunate in my career to be in that position a lot on the women's side. And, uh, you know, Stanford is a uh, perennial power. You know, Tara Vanderveer has continued to wave the banner for Pac-12 basketball and is uh, a big fan of all the other teams in the tournament. And I always admire that about her, her and how she's helped those other programs. And then Muffet McGraw, you know, who's had it a chance to uh, – you know, play in the Elite Eight uh, seven other times. And actually, she was undefeated in the Elite Eight game until um, Sunday. Yeah, and, and, and barely lost in that situation. Do you think, just jumping off of your point, I see the other Pac-12 coaches do much the same thing. You see Corey Close does that all the time uh, on Twitter and talks talk about back in the pack. And uh, Kelly did that in Bridgeport. You see that with Lindsay as well. Do you think that is really just something that comes from the way Tara has always been about the conference? I absolutely believe 100% that is because of Tara, because Tara has helped each one of those coaches that you've mentioned personally with their own programs. Whether uh, she'll tell you a story about how she sent a player to them that couldn't get into Stanford or how she helped them with uh, some other situation, but she's constantly promoting that league, and uh, I think they are good soldiers by helping her. Yeah, it's interesting. Of course, not to her own detriment. She's managed to win a few or a few... Uh Hundred now up over a thousand ball games in order to uh, su succeed herself as well. So this one though had to mean a little more. It was interesting. I was listening to her talk uh, on the phone call today, and she talked about that this team reminds her of her '92 team. It's more of a blue collar team. She uh, called them the Jim Harbaugh team uh, for herself. What is your take on this Stanford team? Do you view it as something more than the sum of its parts? Because they do have star talent at the top. I think this is the most emotional I've ever seen Tara over a team. And she actually told me before the game on Sunday, win or lose, this is going to be a really emotional day for me. Hmm. I think the chemistry of that group is unique and special. I think, uh, you know, she uses Jim Harbaugh. I'm thinking about Jim Beeline, mm -hmm. you know, with uh, the, the grit and the gratitude. Not just how much Tara loves her team. It's how much those kids love Tara. I've never heard the kids talk about Tara the way they talk about her. And it's really, really cool in this special year where she gets a 1,000 wins with this group. And I think it means a lot to her that she could take this team with Carly Samuelson and with Erica McCall as seniors to the Final Four. 
Now, this is a difficult question, and I've wrestled with it all year. When you break down the two Samuelsons, and you try and determine who is the more effective offensive player, whether it's Carly at Stanford or Katie Lou at UConn, both of them, if you go by a synergy uh, offensive points per possession, are in the top 12 in the country. Who do you think is the more effective player, and do you think that there's one whose game stands out for you a little bit more between the two? You know, it's funny because Gino's always saying to Katie Lou, I picked the wrong sister. <laughs> and I think it's quite funny when he says that. Uh, I think they're different. I think Carly works extremely hard off the ball without the ball to get open and to set her feet to make threes. And Katie Lou has a more versatile game where she can post up and she can uh, invert to the block and she can do a few more things off the bounce. I think they're both incredibly talented. They have a certain measure of toughness about them that you can you see they share. And uh, I think they both appreciate the game. They love the game. And Carly even admitted that she found out, you know, just recently how much she really loved the game and she didn't want it to end for her and her teammates. So um, I think they're different. Um, I think they're both tough and uh, competitive. And I, I know it's a, a unique situation and a great storyline in this year's Final Four that sisters will be playing on competitive teams in the Final Four. Yeah, what you talked about, the way the way she's able to uh, use the dribble drive, is just something so significant, especially, I'm, I'm sure you remember, you watched it last year, and Katie Lou looked like a spot-up shooter, and that was what she was, and the extent to which they have grown and developed her talent at Connecticut is is just remarkable to see. Listen, I'm I'm just happy uh, that that their father doesn't have to fly back and forth anymore between the two <laughs> sides. You know, right? And, you know, and you're right, Howard. And you know, just to button up your point on Katie Lou, last year, 63% of the shots she took were outside the arc. This year, it was less than 45. Yeah, I so mean, right around 45, I think my number's right. So it just shows what kind of a versatile player she's become for Connecticut. Well, you know, they're all, all complete players. I, I just wish you'd get to them. But before we do, I just am curious if you think that Stanford now, with McPhee stepping up the way that she has, and, you know, Erica McCall has been a constant Iraq, but not necessarily someone who takes over games offensively. Between the two of them and Samuelson, whether that is the offensive firepower that Stanford needs uh, to be able to not just having gotten to the Final Four, but to make a real run at a national championship here? Well, the one thing that you can guarantee is that Tara is going to have a game plan, and her kids are going to execute it, and they are not going to make a mistake very often in that game plan. So with a matchup with South Carolina, you know, the first option is Asia Wilson. They'll do everything they can to try to take that away with great ball pressure, take away the high-low game. And then, uh, you know, McPhee is probably going to be on Kayla Davis, who's had the hot hand for South Carolina in the NCAA tournament. And they're probably not going to guard the point guards for South Carolina, and they're going to force them to make plays. Now, that's not new for South Carolina, but I think they have been able to make some adjustments around that. 
but I'm just anticipating that that is what we'll see from Tara. And uh, with that defensive game plan, yes, I think they do have enough offense to score. I mean, it's such a great point because Taylor Davis is the mismatch issue potentially for Stanford. And being able to make sure that someone is able to guard her is going to be so significant. It's something that, quite frankly, no one's been able to do in the tournament so far. But I wonder, and I'm curious your take on this as well. Uh, Elena Coates is a tremendous player and, and is obviously missed. But when you look at the spacing that South Carolina has on the offensive end now, the relative freedom that Asia Wilson has, not having to worry about overlapping movement uh, with Coates down low and trying to coordinate that, and additional freedom that you see from Kayla Davis as well, does it seem to you like something has almost clicked in terms of what, of what Dawn's offense looks like now? I think their offense is better playing with one in and four out because of the skill set of Kayla Davis and Alicia Gray. And Alicia Gray played some four at North Carolina, so it's not a new position for her to be able to, to you know, counter her perimeter skill with being able to play, you know, some on the block if necessary. The thing that I think uh, is has been so impressive is that um, – you know, making this adjustment sort of late. I mean, you remember during the season, Elena got hurt, then she came back, then she got hurt again. And I think what Dawn Staley has done is a tremendous coaching job, getting her kids in the right frame of mind. If you're Alicia Gray and you're Kayla Davis, yes, you're looking inside as the first option to establish Asia Wilson, Mm -hmm. but you don't have to uh, worry about the space. There's going to be opportunity to drive. There's going to be chances for you to be able to be a playmaker. And I didn't think there were that many chances except for in transition. Now when the game slows down in the quarter court, there are gaps and seams that they can get into and they don't see two jerseys all the time. When you think of what will win this game uh, coming up, do you think ultimately that South Carolina's offensive execution has to be the difference, or do you think this really does come down to a question of defensive stops? And the reason why I ask that is, you know, we, we associate so much of what Stanford does and so much of what Notre Dame does as well at the defensive end. But when you think about down the stretch in that game, that was a series of players making plays, uh, primarily in the half court, uh, in order to take that game right down to the final possession. Howard, you know I see the game through an offensive lens, so of course I'm going to talk about how important guard play is, and yes, you've got to get stops in the tournament, but you also have to be able to make plays, and I think the the two um, under-regarded positions for both teams are the point guards, and let's see what, you know, Bree Roberson and Marta Snezik does against the combination of Tasha Harris and Bianca Cuevas-Moore. I think that is a big key to the game because the other parts of it will play its way out. You know, McCall is at times going to be able to score on Wilson and Wilson on McCall. And, you know, they're going to probably try to turn Asia into a passer, you know, not let her just, you know, do what she wants to do off the bounce or from the post position. But I think it's going to be about the point guards in this game, and I think it always comes down to the point guard play in March. And that's what's so interesting about this matchup is they are not the traditional, the classic uh, powerful point guard who is leading an offense that you tend to think of when it comes to Final Four teams. So that will be absolutely fascinating. I agree with you. There's another point guard who we probably ought to talk about. Uh, she had uh, a fairly decent game in the Elite Eight, uh, Morgan William. Uh, and I'm curious what you make of that game, not just in and of itself, and the inspiration of it uh, was 
amazing. I, I frankly, uh, I was tearing up just watching her in the post-game interview. But also, do, did we see an evolution of her as a player? Did we see an all-time great game and she comes back to earth on Friday night against UConn? Uh, what are your thoughts on her? Well, I've had Mississippi State, I think, four times this year. So I have seen them quite a bit and studied them. I think she's fantastic. I'm not sure there's anybody end-to-end faster with the ball in their hands than, than Morgan William. But for her to be able to make the threes that she made in that game on that stage, I think is the most remarkable part of what she did. Not penetration, not drive and dish, not defending, none of that, or playing or using her quickness. I think she is playing at, at the most... Um, confident level that you could possibly be playing for leading a team and a very subtle quiet leader she's not a vocal kid uh you know and and i'm sure the change in lineup you know with Vic putting keeping her in the starting lineup when he went to the change you know for the three games leading into the baylor game i thought um morgan uh, has an incredible head on her shoulder she's a smart kid and i have always um referred to her in only this terms and the only, there's only one other player that I've said this about, Howard, and that is Ivory Latta. I call her untrappable, unflappable. You cannot keep her in front. You cannot trap her. And that is a dimension that is really tough to deal with when you get to this time of the year when somebody who's playing really well with the ball in their hands. Absolutely true. And, boy, will it be great to see Ivory in a few weeks when the WNBA resumes uh, for, the, for that Mystics team that is absolutely loaded. But in terms of William, Having her as not just the floor leader, but as a number one scorer for that team seems to me really significant. Victoria Vivians is a tremendous player and lauded and rightfully so. But at times it seems like Vivians steps back from the opportunity to take control of a game offensively. You've seen him a bunch. Has that been your impression as well? And do you think that having William being the one taking those big shots down the stretch is something vital for Mississippi State? I think part of the reason why Vic did not start Victoria Vivian is because he was trying to prove to her that we need more from you than just your shooting ability. There's other ways you can impact the game. And when she is playing defense, getting steals, getting out on the break, when she's getting to the free throw line, not just working off baseline screens or coming off pin downs, but when she's actually providing an added value to her skill set and her size and her athleticism, I think that helps Mississippi State. And clearly Morgan has taken some pressure off of everyone because she can do that. Now, the one thing about going against Connecticut that I, I didn't um, necessarily focus on in, in, as the season had gone on, but this is where I think they have improved the most, mm-hmm. is their defense in denying the entry pass on the wing. Oregon could not make an entry pass to the wing. You have to have your pressure reliever offensive package in, meaning dribble entries to the wing, uh, run your high post stuff, um, dribble entries to, or passes to the high post, and playing vertically through the shoot so you alleviate some of the help that Connecticut provides on their defense. And Morgan William has the quickness to be able to handle some of that, and I think with the way Vic will run his offense, I'm sure he learned that watching the game against Oregon, that you're going to have to have your dribble entries into the wing if you're going to get into your offense to make that entry into the post. I mean, it was so striking, and and obviously we can transition to UConn from here, but that inability uh, from Oregon, and Oregon had become so efficient uh, at it all year, and quite frankly, 
weren't even contested doing it against Maryland. And so the thought I kept going back to, and, and I thought this going in, not that I thought that Oregon would beat Maryland, that came as a, a big surprise to me, but I thought that Oregon and Maryland were in a lot of ways parallel teams. And you compare the success that Destiny Slocum had being able to find Bree Jones in that game against UConn back in December to the way that it simply wasn't happening for Sabrina Ionescu, uh, you know, on, uh, in the game against Oregon. Well, is that just simply a question of UConn coming in with a different game plan? Is that simply a question of UConn being exponentially better at those entry pass denials than they were a few months ago? Or is there something else at play there? I think it's where Connecticut has improved the most is on the defensive end. Um, their quickness, their length, their connectivity, if you will, on the defensive end was really, really impressive. Uh, I mean, in three and a half minutes into the game, it was 15-4, to four and the game was over. Right. You know, because there was no ch- – Oregon kept turning the ball over. They just couldn't couldn't get into rhythm, and Connecticut had everything to do with that. So um, I walked away – well, even that arena, arena the uh, last night, Howard, after that game going, I don't think they're ever going to lose. <laughs> I don't think Connecticut's ever going to lose. I don't – they're not going you, – you know, they're going to win. You, you're really going to have to have an incredible game plan and they're going to have to have an incredibly off night. Or you could get them into foul trouble, because if you can get into their bench, you have a chance. Otherwise, I, I don't see anybody beating them. Not not this year, not next year, not the year after. I mean, this streak could be incredible. And, and look, this year was the shot. This year was the chance to get them, because at least they didn't have the depth. Uh, Gino was quite vocal about the fact that he expected his team to lose early on this season. So, you know, you look at next year, where, where Stevens comes in as the transfer from Duke, and they had uh, a, a terrific recruiting class led by Megan Walker, and suddenly they've got the numbers to go with it. They're not losing anyone off of this team other than Sanaya Chong, who is not a small loss, especially at the defensive end. But just the same, you have Crystal Dangerfield to be able to plug there as well at the point it you know UConn 200 UConn 300 could be a thing that we start to talk about I agree just to finish up that point on Mississippi State before we we, we get to UConn uh, in terms of McCowan being able to be quick enough to get those entry passes is that something realistic we know Morgan William is going to be quick enough to be able to find her is that going to be something that you think is a plausible scenario or is this just the way UConn is going to defend the bigs and eliminate, quite frankly, any perceived advantage a team would have had earlier this year when you say, all right, well, you only have Gabby Williams only, you know, who's only 5'11". Well, the, the size for Mississippi State is certainly impressive. And honestly, McCowan doesn't have a lot of post moves or some sort of counter that she can go to. Right. So if you make plays in the shoot, which is the free throw lane extended, okay, it's very difficult to bring help on that high-low pass. Mm-hmm. See, to me, that is how, if, if Mississippi State starts out the game looking in the shoot, trying to make passes to the elbows, to the high-low game, through the middle of the floor, you can take away some of that help. If you can get Gabby Williams or Nafisa Collier in a one-on-one with McCowan, you might be able to get them in foul trouble. And you're going to have to find early offense, and McCowan and Shinwei Okore are going to have to run the floor hard every time to try to get early post-up position. Because if you can do that, you can put some pressure on them. But if you start playing side-to-side, east-to-west, that's Connecticut's advantage. Yeah. Uh, so early offense plays in the shoot. And, and I'm willing to bet that 
the thing that Kelly Graves most re- most regrets from early on last night was you had Gabby Williams got her first foul on the open floor, and they simply didn't find a way to put pressure on her to get that second foul. I was surprised we didn't see McGuire uh, out of the high post being able to try to deliver that ball to Ruthie, uh, especially early on, and that might have changed at least some tenor of the early part of the game. Then again, 90-52 and all the things that UConn did, hard to imagine. So let's let's talk about UConn because they certainly look as unbeatable as they did for much of last year. And, And that was the critical difference this year. The idea being that Connecticut, even if everything went right for the other team last year, it wasn't going to be enough. It wasn't going to be close to enough. And we saw a number of times this year, whether it was the Maryland game, whether it was Florida State, who was right there with them, uh, even you know Baylor for a significant period of time, South Carolina for, let's say, a quarter and a half, there were teams that could match up with this Connecticut team. I, I think one of the big differences is Sanaya Chan, who is giving them that senior point guard and that significant floor leader day in and day out, that Crystal Dangerfield, for all of her talent and future potential, was not giving them quite yet. Do you see a scenario for any of the teams remaining to beat Connecticut? Have you ever seen any underdog movies like Rudy or Little Giants? <laughs> yes. Or NC State's 30 for 30 where Jim Valvano took down Houston in five slamajama? Yes, indeed. If I'm those three teams, Howard, that's what I'm watching. Forget the game film. I'm putting those inspirational movies in front of my team right now, and I'm saying, look what Jim Valvano did. No one thought NC State could possibly beat Five Slamma Jamma in the 1983 National Championship. It was a one in a million opportunity, right? Mm-hmm. That's kind of the odds that you have with UConn. I'm not being sarcastic here. I am sure. being serious. You know, you have to make sure that your team has to believe they can do it. Now, do all five, the other three teams have enough offense? I think they do. Do they have enough coaching to come up with a game plan? Yes, I believe they do. However, Last night, watching that machine, it was so machine-like, I don't even think they have a heartbeat. It was so crisp and clear and clean and very industrial-like. That's how good they were. And I've never said that about any other team. I, I Last year was scripted. There was no drama. They had the best players. They had the best coach. They're going to win. This year, it is so much more unscripted. And I think even with Coach Oriyama admitting that he thought everyone would, someone would get them, everyone thought they were going to lose a game. Yeah. I thought they were going to lose two, at least two, mm-hmm. based on the talent. But once again, you know, he says things like this. There's 20 All-Americans, I get three. Where do the rest of them go? There's, you know, all these All-Americans, I've got three. There's teams that we've played this year that were supposed to beat us that had more. Yeah. There is a certain measure of discipline and execution that has to be taken, that has to take place. And you can't just show up and play Connecticut and think you're going to execute and be disciplined. It is a part of that cliche culture that people talk about. Connecticut has a culture. They have an identity. They're not about running plays. They're about making plays. And it's a big difference when you watch them versus everyone else in the country until everyone else figures out what their formula really is because that is clearly the measuring stick. And, you know, I don't remember who finished second during the Pat Summa era, 
But I, and I don't remember who finished the second during the Gino Oriema era. So if you're really going to compete, you're going to have to really challenge yourself to look at what you're doing with your culture and can you ever put in the the, the good basketball habits that can compete and play for 40 minutes against a team like Connecticut. Because right now, it's incredibly difficult to do so. And I, I know, as good as all the other three teams are and as much as we like to talk about parity and depth, until somebody beats them, I don't know if we can talk about it. Well, those are the two tracks, right? The parity and depth is clearly improving in the game, top to bottom, and the Pac-12 is a great example of that. But at the very top, you're absolutely right. There is not a challenger right now. And I, I walked out of Bridgeport feeling the same way you did, just this feeling like, wow, it's hard to imagine that anyone is ever going to beat this team. So it will be fascinating to see. But someday, and I said that to you last night, someday we're going to be there when it happens. It, it may yeah. be a long, long time from now, and we'll remember that moment for the rest of our lives, just as I'm sure we'll remember this team, that's for sure. Well, Debbie, what can people look for from you this week uh, coming up in Dallas? Oh, gosh, I'm going to I'm, – I'm, actually, I'm spending one day here at home. I'm in the car rider line waiting for one kid, and then I'm going to the other school to pick up the other. Uh, but I'll get in Dallas tomorrow. Uh, I've got a couple of meetings. I've got uh, – I am speaking to the uh, coaches under 30 years of age. They have a, a group that I'll speak, get to speak to on Thursday. But I'll be in the arena. I'll be at practices. I'll be looking forward to – you know, doing my preparation for Westwood One Radio. And, Howard, this is my 21st year calling uh, the Final Four on Westwood One, and I appreciate ESPN for allowing me to do so, uh, a, a 21st year, uh, letting me uh, have this um, opportunity again uh, because of my contract with them. So I'm, I'm thrilled to be in Dallas. I can't wait to see you, and I'm looking forward to seeing and uh, meeting a lot of new fans. Oh, it's going to be terrific. And, and listen, just as a fan of the game, being able to uh, hear you make the calls, being able to see you on the women's tournament, being able to see the great work you did on the men's side as well, fantastic to see. And the last note I will leave you with is, and I pointed this out on Twitter, it wasn't just that you were calling the game so effectively with Beth uh, in the Elite Eight. You were anticipating things. You were seeing things before they were happening on the court. And so that's the thing I respect the most about being able to watch you call a game. So, Debbie Antonelli, thank you for all that you do for the game, and thanks for being on the podcast today. really appreciate it. Howard, thank you for all that you do for the game, and I appreciate you having me on, and I look forward to seeing you, my friend. Sounds good to me, and a reminder to our listeners, you can follow us on Twitter at LockedOnWBB, like us on Facebook, or Go ahead and subscribe to us on iTunes, your podcast listen of choice. I'm Howard Meddahl, wishing you a wonderful day.